Transform the way you hunt with the all-new Bay Cellular Trail Camera connected by the Moultrie Mobile app. Moultrie Mobile's industry-best app gives you complete control over your camera settings, up-to-the-minute updates from the field, and other interactive scouting tools on your smartphone or computer. Features like weather forecast, advanced species recognition, interactive maps, and a whole lot more. For more information and to make your purchase, visit www.moultriemobile.com. Interstate Batteries offers a wide variety of batteries for your everyday needs. Stop into one of their thousands of retail locations and talk with a battery specialist about batteries for your truck, trail cameras, and even those weird batteries for your rangefinder. Interstate Batteries even offers cell phone repair in certain locations. For more information, visit interstatebatteries.com. Interstate Batteries, outrageously dependable. On today's podcast episode, I'm going to break down the hunt that I had last weekend where I finally punched my tag on a nice Wisconsin buck and all of the struggles that I had kind of leading up to that point, the moves that I made and decisions I made uh, leading right up until when I finally uh, released the arrow and then also just some additional thoughts on uh, some of the specific setups. You know, I tried a different arrow setup and a a different uh, broadhead specifically for this deer and this hunt just to kind of see what would happen. So I'll give my results there. And then I'll also dive into some lessons learned on this particular tag this particular year. You know, I had some pretty in-depth plans going into the season for this area. I had a lot of historical data from trail cameras and observations and sightings that uh, really gave me high hopes going into late October. And it just really didn't pan out at all. And I go into some of the reasons why I think that was and what I'm going to be able to do differently uh, to try and fix that moving forward. Before we get started, I have a quick message about the Spartan Forge app, which you can get a 20% discount on by using the code DIY. The app allows you to do all of your standard mapping, navigation in the field, and waypoint management. You can currently choose from three different satellite views, topo, and in many areas, aerial imagery at multiple time points throughout history, view public and private lands, color code your permission status on those private lands, view all of your forecasted and historical weather info, add journaling entries for your hunts that automatically tag the weather conditions and wind for that time period, and view a deer movement prediction powered by machine learning based on collared deer studies across the country. I also have a walkthrough video posted on my YouTube channel that you can use to physically see the app in more detail. And with that, let's dive back into the episode. So this year I had some pretty high hopes for the end of October. In fact, I planned most of my rotation to basically be before November had even started. And this was based largely on hunts that I did, observations that I had, trail camera information over the last two years in this particular area that I was really putting a lot of my time and focus into, where I had a number of uh, bigger bucks, and and, uh, one in particular that I almost punched my tag on, should have punched my tag on last year, and he got even bigger this year. Uh, So I was really hoping to be able to get an opportunity at him, and I had a bunch of data to say he's going to be here at this place in this time. Uh, along with a couple of other options. So I was going to kind of go all in on that plan. But as you guys remember, we had very warm weather throughout much of the Midwest. And that kind of, you know, threw a wrench into a lot of people's plans, I believe. But what I did notice is that around October 16th, 17th or so, uh, there were a couple of those older bucks that daylighted. And It was really brief. You had to be in the right spot at the right time if you were going to want to capitalize on it. Of the bucks that I did see, you know, you really would have only had, at least for, you know, the trail cameras that I was running to be able to observe, 
you'd have had like one shot uh, at being able to punch a tag right then and there. And as we got later and later into October, then I'm expecting that, you know, by that third week, a lot of these deer would have started to shift into their rut ranges by then and starting to get nighttime activity. Um, scrapes would be, you know, starting to light up. Rubs would start, and op- start to open up and, you know, a lot of that sign to be left at night. But as we get later and later into, you know, October, you know, 28th, 29th, 30th, uh, 31st, even November 1st, you know, a lot of that activity would start to turn into daylight activity. And, you know, we got closer and closer there and, you know, I took the PTO and started hunting in some of these spots and, you know, I wasn't seeing what I expected to see in terms of sightings, in terms of big sign in the area. You know, every time I'd be walking in and out of the place, I'd be, you know, observing places that would usually have big tracks or scrapes on, you know, logging roads that I'd usually be able to see sign on or just be able to see, you know, tall rubs or lack of tall rubs. And I wasn't seeing some of that big sign. And it was a little bit of a head scratcher because, you know, I could definitely understand if I was not getting eyes on, you know, some of those deer, but, uh, to not see the sign at all and to not even get nighttime pictures of some of those deer was a little bit odd. Uh, and granted the weather was really warm. And so thinking maybe that's it. And then also just kind of driving around, you know, this is big property, big land, um, you know, a lot of place to roam on this public, but. I always kind of assumed that some of these deer in this area would summer on private land in especially standing cornfields. And then they would migrate a decent uh, amount of distance to be able to get towards some of those rut ranges where, you know, the doe bedding and, and some of those young bucks bend the summer months. And so I kept hunting and kept playing the wind and going in sitting scrapes that should be hot, should be a lot of action. And I was starting to see some deer. I was seeing, um, some smaller bucks moving and hitting some of those scrapes, but I definitely wasn't seeing any of those big ones. And around this time, I started to wonder, ah, maybe it's just hunting some spots that are a little bit closer to the road, put some meat in the freezer, uh, shoot a doe. And unfortunately, Sam, uh, of course shot her doe, which was a surprising lot amount of meat. I can't remember. I should start writing down how much meat I get per deer just to average it out. But all of the meat that we ended up just, you know, kind of putting into the, the grind pile, cause we're pretty short on ground venison. It was over 40 pounds. It was like 42 pounds or something of just like trimmed, uh, lean meat, not including any of, you know, the loins or the heart or the back straps or anything like that, uh, which seemed like it was a lot of meat off of just one doe. Um, there's some conversions online that I used. We didn't weigh the deer, but it probably was in the neighborhood of like 130 dressed or so, which is a pretty good sized doe. Uh, but regardless, you know, I sat some spots that were close to the road. I sat some spots that were, you know, way back far in. One thing that is noteworthy is that two of the sets that I went in to sit scrapes in the early morning, because a lot of those like late October, historically, I'd want to get in there first light before first light, even because some of those bucks would cruise in daylight and hit those scrapes, you know, an hour after light or two hours after light, uh, or occasionally midday, um, or occasionally late in the evening. So you could really sit some of those scrapes all day, just based on some of the historical data that I had on them. And there were two instances in where I got set up in some of those good historical scrapes and it gets light and I see a cell camera, like, you know, 20 yards away from the scrape, uh, not, not usually right on the same scrape that I was hunting over, but like on the same travel corridor. And, uh, the place that I ground hunted and did a video at last year, there was a cell camera sitting right overlooking that same spot to where, like, if I was sitting in the same spot that I would have been hunting last year, like I'd have been like right in plain view of that guy's camera. 
So I definitely knew that there was more pressure this year, or at least if there was the same amount of pressure, whoever was out there hunting was, you know, utilizing cameras more. And I found climbing sticks in a few more places that I hadn't found in the past. Uh, but again, an increase in hunting pressure shouldn't just like totally turn off the deer sightings, at least nocturnally, uh, for some of those animals I was seeing. You know, I could see if they were shifting a little bit, but, uh, it seemed more like they just were not there. And I've been talking to a few people to try and get some thoughts on, you know, how I explain this. Cause if it was one deer, that would be easy to explain. Like, oh, he probably just got killed. Right. But several of them, uh, was kind of a head scratcher and I'm still really interested to see over the next several months, like, will these things all of a sudden show up in late season? Like, is there something that happened on adjacent ground that we're pulling some of these deer throughout the course of the season, right? Did it have something to do with the crops? And, and I thought for a while, maybe it was the staining corn, but then the staining corn got pulled out and they still didn't show up. So I don't really know all the details there. I do know that I'm going to do a lot more scouting, but as we got into the end of October and even into early November, you know, I had filmed a, you know, several nice deer that, um, generally speaking, if I was like on a totally blind or out of state hunt, I'd be happy to shoot. I got to the point where I'm like, you know what? Um, I can either continue hunting in the hopes that, you know, some of these, these ghosts show up and just kind of continue to scout or maybe go into some piece totally blind, you know, in the hopes that maybe I stumble onto something and get lucky. Um, and I said, or I can just hunt new spots, hunt in, uh, areas that are maybe, you know, stuff that I've scouted in the postseason, but I'm not actively running cameras over or anything like that and just shoot whatever makes me happy. Uh, and I definitely started to lean more towards that aspect of it. Uh, instead of just going in totally blind to a piece, which of course can be fun thinking, you know, I, I know this place like the back of my hand from how much time I spent in the woods. Like I'm just going to go set up on some of these good pinches down with a doe bedding area. I've got trees already, you know, pre-planned in my head. I've got them marked on the app, um, on Spartan Forge and the weather, of course, even through some of the early part of November wasn't still great, but as we started to get close to that, you know, eighth, ninth, 10th, the weather started to get a lot better. So I started to take, uh, more time off and just basically do all day sits and do some of these sits between bedding areas, do some of these sits, uh, downwind of doe bedding areas. And there was one hunt in particular where I think I saw four or five different bucks. I mean, it was a lot of, a lot of rut action. Uh, and I was seeing deer when I would go into the woods too. I usually wouldn't set up right before first light, uh, come this time of year, because some of the places I was hunting were far enough back where if you count the drive and then the access time and then the all day sit and then the access back out and then the drive back home, I was getting like three hours of sleep, which you can do for a couple of days in a row. But if you're doing it a lot more than that, I mean, it's just, it's draining, uh, you know, hanging the, the setup and tearing it down and the camera gear and everything. And generally I, I found that action wise, if I was in the tree within like an hour after sunrise, uh, I would usually still see a lot of that same rut action. Uh, there didn't seem like there was a ton that would happen within that first hour of light, not to say it never happened, but, um, it usually seemed like around an hour to three hours after sunup was when I had a lot of that good activity. And that was especially true too, when we had some of those really warm days where it would heat up a lot in the afternoon, but it'd be cooler in the morning. Those early morning, mid-morning hours seem to be the hottest. And you know, there were days where I saw, I think, four or five different bucks uh, in total. Some of them might have been repeats. It's hard to tell when they're you know through that thick cover. And 
one of the days when I was sitting down with a doe bedding area and I could hear just these vocalizations, right? You could hear bucks out there thrashing in the marsh. Uh, there was one doe, it must've been uh, a button buck fawn that was just getting kicked out. Cause this fawn was just like whining for about a half an hour, uh, just bleeding over and over and over again, right through the marsh. And the, the doe was like, you know, trying to go off her own way. Uh, the fawn was trying to like follow behind. I'm sure it was one of those cases where, uh, they were starting to split up and, you know, bucks were starting to harass some of those does. Uh, I could hear one buck out in this tamarack marsh where I could basically just follow the grunting. He was grunting often enough that I could track his position 150 yards out in this marsh and basically know exactly where he was at relative to all those, you know, tamarack grubs and everything out there, which is pretty cool. And I started doing some calling back. I did a snort wheeze to a deer that didn't respond at all. I didn't really get spooked either. And that particular buck that I could track in the marsh, uh, I grunted to him a couple times and then I could, I don't know if he was reacting or responding to my call or if he would have done this anyway, but he basically made a big loop uh, through that marsh and got more or less downwind of me. And then he got quiet for a bit because he'd worked his way to probably 60 yards or so uh, where I could hear him, you know, kind of working in the marsh and grunting. And it was so thick, I couldn't see him, but he got downwind of me and it got quiet for a while. And then, I don't know, maybe half an hour later, uh, kind of quartering behind me, I could hear a buck grunt again. And then he basically worked his way back around to my right side, worked his way through at like 25 yards, went out to the marsh again, came back and walked basically right under my, underneath my tree. And that was a decent buck too, one that I probably would have shot. But when he came through the first time, I knew that along that trail, there were, you know, some twigs and branches that in that gray light, I just, I couldn't quite see them and I knew that they were there. So it wasn't a perfect shot opportunity. And when he came back in, it was like three or four minutes after shooting light. You know, it was one of those deals where it's like, ah, you could probably fit an arrow through there if you wanted to, but as after shooting light, I didn't feel comfortable with it regardless. And so I just got some footage of him, and I basically just kept hunting like that. Finally, we get to last weekend and I basically planned for, you know, we got consistent wind directions here out of a northerly direction. I'm going to sit downwind of this one particular doe bedding area where there's a really good pinch point with some deadfall. And I'm just going to plan on sitting there, you know, three, four days in a row. I go in the first day and I don't see anything the whole day. But like some people say, every hour that goes by that you don't see a deer is one hour closer to when you do see your next deer. I think I've heard Diane Stewart say that. And I went back in the next morning and weather-wise, you know, I could tell that this was going to be, it just felt like a better day. I couldn't guarantee anything was going to happen, right? But in comparison to the day before, it was a clear day and just like crisp. Like it was a few degrees cooler. I think it was 26 or 27 degrees. So there's a little bit of, um, frost on the ground. Everything was super crunchy and even the swamp had a little crusting of ice over it. So it was a little bit louder for me walking in, uh, but I got in early enough and, you know, I usually had been getting in there like an hour or so after sunrise. This time I made sure to get up and uh, be set up and ready to shoot right at shooting light just because I knew that that spot could produce and I wanted to be there nice and quiet. I get in there, get set up and within an hour after uh, light, I could see and hear a deer working up his way in the bedding area. I could just see a flash of his rack. He was grunting. He was raking his antlers in the brush. And 
I thought for sure he was going to work his way right down to me. Yeah, I got the cameras on. I was hitting record. I had my release on the string. I was ready to draw back, and it just kind of got quiet. And then I finally realized, like, oh, he must have, you know, taken that other trail to go further north. So I tried grunting, nothing. Tried rattling, nothing. And so I just continued to hunt at that point. Maybe another hour or so later, I could hear deer coming in from uh, the marsh direction, coming back into bed around this pinch point. And I could see at first that it's a doe and a fawn. And as they come in closer and they kind of wrap their way around the deadfall, I was doing a lot of the filming. And this doe, she was just on edge. You know, in the tree that I was in, I had a decent amount of cover, lots of branches, not a ton of back cover, but pretty good back cover. And I was behind the tree because uh, I was sitting up in my saddle and she was just, you know, back and forth looking at that tree. So I, I don't know if she could see me or just like enough of a blob to make her feel like something was awry. You know, she probably walks that trail all the time, but she didn't quite spook. Um, you know, she just kind of was cautious and that button buck was following her. And then she got to where my uh, scent trail was and I walked in. And the only way to get into the spot, I basically had to walk with the wind at my back the whole way in and basically walk right through my shooting lane uh, to get into the spot, which is okay because if they reach that spot, then I can already release an arrow. And when I'm set up in that spot, my wind then is blowing a safe direction. So as long as I get in before the deer do, then it's fine. But this doe, she, you know, caught my ground scent and she didn't spook. She didn't blow, but you know, you could tell that she was on edge for sure. And she eventually just kind of, you know, slowly worked her way up into that bedding area. And the button buck was kind of hanging out by me. Button buck kept looking back behind him and I could see a third deer coming through. And this one, I look up and it's a little bit bigger body deer and I can see a rack right away. Like, okay, like he's, he's probably following that doe, you know, kind of surprised at this point too, that that doe still had a button buck, you know, we're talking. November 12th here, only a couple days from, uh, the peak breeding bell curve. And so he kind of pushed that button back out of the way. And I made it my mind pretty quickly. Like I'm going to shoot this deer, you know, kind of going back to, I'm going to shoot whatever makes me happy. I've I put in a lot of time, a lot of effort, uh, into this particular tag in this particular season. Um, so I knew I was going to take an opportunity to shoot that deer if I could got the cameras pointing in the right direction. And basically waited until that buck started to wrap around that deadfall because that gave me a good opportunity to draw when he was obscured by a bunch of that cover. So I got back to full draw. He worked his way really close to the shooting lane and stopped just shy of it. And they started walking again. As soon as he got in that lane, I did a little mouth bleed to stop him and, uh, you know, took my time to aim, release the arrow, full pass through deer took off running and I heard him crash, you know, five, six seconds later, something like that. Uh, so I knew pretty much right away that it was a, a great shot. It was a little bit higher than I was aiming. I'm not exactly sure what happened there, but, uh, I probably hit four or five inches higher than what I was really aiming at, but it worked out just fine. Cause I double lunged him and it went in just beneath the spine and center punched the far lung. So it all worked out great. I was able to easily track that deer and then, uh, called my wife and she decided that she wanted to come out and help drag which was a chore because in hindsight, I, I definitely should have quartered and packed this deer out. I mean, that's always, almost always the easier option. Uh, but for whatever reason, I decided let's drag this thing out with a sled. It was kind of swampy and uh, a little bit wet. A game cart was not going to work back there. And 
it took forever. I think it was four or five hours, something like that. I lost count, but a pretty miserable drag out. Uh, of course, worth it in the end. Now, I mentioned I was going to touch on the, the difference in setup. What I did here is I was using a little bit lighter, faster arrow setup, and I had used in the past, from a mechanical standpoint, a, a Cyber 1.5, but never for deer. I had used it, uh, I shot a coyote with one and, and a, a pig in Georgia, and I'd kind of been on the fence about trying them for deer. You know, I'm usually a fixed bay guy. I usually have had both styles in my quiver for the last several years because I understand the, uh, the value that a mechanical type head can have. Uh, but typically the setups that I have, they're usually close, close quarters. I can't always guarantee that I'm going to get a perfect broadside or quartering away angle. And I usually don't have to deal with too much wind. So usually fixed blade just makes a lot of sense uh, for what I'm doing. But in this case, I was like, I know I'm going to get, you know, a broadside shot. This is a good opportunity to try the setup out. So a little bit lighter setup, a uh, big two inch mechanical. Cause I tried the, the 2.0 version of that head. The arrow was a full pass through at 20 yards and it stuck into the dirt about two or three inches, but it also looked like the arrow kicked pretty heavily. Uh, once it impacted the ground, not when it was going through the deer, it went through the, the deer, like a laser beam. Um, but I think that's why it must've hit like a root or something. I think that's why it only went in a couple inches into the dirt on the backside. And the blood trail was pretty good. I mean, the deer took off running as fast as he could and made it 120 yards in that, you know, five, six second dash or whatever. Um, but between bounds or between, you know, bursts, the blood was a little bit spotty. Uh, but whenever he, he hit and the blood would spray, I mean, it was really obvious and a ton of blood where he ended up piling and crashing up on the ground. The, the head actually impacted vertically and went between the ribs on the entry side, just nicked one of the ribs on the outgoing side. And so it wasn't, you know, a real hard scenario for any kind of a head to get through in that uh, case. I'm sure if I had been using a fixed blade head, it probably would have had the exact same outcome. I don't know why I shot a little bit high. You know, I was aiming like I usually do around the heart level and, and hit, you know, just underneath the spine and the deer didn't really duck at all. I think this is something also too, that was very interesting about that setup in the past. I've hunted in the last five years, as slow as like 237 feet a second with my new breed. And when I was, you know, shooting 250 or 650 grain arrows and as fast as I'm shooting now, which is 308 feet per second with like a 420 or 425 grain arrow, somewhere right around there. The speed is obviously different and the time of flight is obviously quite a bit different. And I started to do some math and review some data from videos that I have on a number of deer that had jumped the string and what the reaction time was, how long it took them to get from start of reaction to full reaction. And basically the, uh, the results that I came up with are kind of interesting. And this is just kind of like an initial stab at looking at this but I'm sure I'll expand on this and eventually have a, you know, full podcast or full video explaining this in more depth. But it seemed like generally speaking, deer would take around 0.11 seconds from the time that the sound reached them until they started to react. And then it would take them about two tenths of a second to get from the start of reaction to full string jump. And with like my recurve, for example, that means they could start their movement when the arrows around eight yards out of the bow and they could be at full duck by the time the arrows at like 18 to 20 yards, uh, with that compound. Um, and I ran the numbers here at 316, even though I was only shooting 308. 
uh, at 316 feet a second, 16 yards is the, that, uh, that same instance and where that's when the deers are going to start moving. And around 37 yards is when they would be at full string jump. So I'm going to eventually expand this into basically a whole table with a bunch of different speeds just to kind of have as a quick reference guide. Uh, but I verified this and even look back at some of the footage from the doe that I had hit with my traditional bow and, and hit above the spine and just looking at the, the footage and counting the frame by frame at 60 frames a second. If I had been shooting a compound with that 300 foot a second arrow in that same instance with the exact same aim, exact same point of impact, the doe would have only moved like an inch, maybe an inch and a half by the time the arrow impacted the deer. And it would have easily been under the spine, would have been a 10 ring shot and would have easily killed her. Uh, so definitely not, uh, trying to preach here or say one thing is right or wrong. It's just fresh on my mind. Something that was interesting that I was looking at and just kind of with the collection of, of things that I've looked at at this point. And of course I did that testing with the light and the heavy arrows from a trajectory and time of flight standpoint and looking at the retained energy, retained momentum, retained speed, all that good stuff. Looked at the uh, sound of the bow, sound of the arrows, you know, at this point I'm kind of leaning towards if I'm worried about penetration, I'll just make sure I have a reasonable choice for broadhead on the front and I'll stay generally with a faster, lighter setup. Obviously with a traditional bow, I can't do that. Um, so that setup is going to be its own thing. Uh, but from a compound perspective, I think I'm definitely staying, uh, you know, kind of in that low to mid 400 grain range, you know, around 300 feet a second plus or minus. And again, we'll just probably still continue to use both fixed and mechanical heads and just pick whichever one seems like the better tool for the job based on the specific tree and the specific setup. Is it windy? Is it not windy? Is it close quarters? Am I going to get an easy broadside shot? All those types of things. So for what's next, I will be uh, taking a few more days off here toward the end of November and traveling back out to North Dakota and we'll try my luck there. It's going to be brutally cold. Um, I've been talking to a lot of people about, uh, the cold weather stuff just to see what I might be missing. You know, Bo Martana could just come back from Alberta. He had some really interesting insight cause it had gotten down to, I think as low as negative 26 wind chill. And there's things that you wouldn't think to think about like, Oh, if you use a thumb release, it might freeze up on the string. So don't use a thumb release unless you're going to, you know, have it in your mouth the whole time. Don't hang it on the string, little stuff like that. So that was really good to get, uh, his insight and, I'll uh, see what I'm able to do. Uh, I've scouted a lot of the places where I'd be going and know where some of those bedding areas are, know where some of the scrapes are. Uh, it'll obviously be kind of on the tail end of the bell curve of the rut when I go up there, which definitely st could still be a really good time to get some of that late rut cruising activity. So that should be fun. And uh, hopefully I'll have another good update from that trip. That'll do it for this week's episode. As always, make sure to follow the Sportsman's Empire on Instagram and Facebook, leave a five-star review on iTunes, and if you're looking for additional content from myself, subscribe to DIY Sportsman on YouTube and hit the bell icon to be notified of new videos. You can also follow DIY underscore Sportsman on Instagram. And with that, thanks for listening.